Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all again. If you would uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, um, solely out of preference, read whatever you like, won't compromise the message at all. We'll begin reading at verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we give thanks to you today for this time in your word. We lift it up to you. May you bring your truth, your wisdom to us. Amen. In Ravenna, Italy, there stands a small mausoleum frequented by many tourists and historians. It's known today as the Gala Placidia. It's a tomb dedicated to the daughter of Emperor Theodosius I. Upon entering the mausoleum, there's not much to see. It's dimly lit and overly crowded. Perhaps a number of visitors leave the Placidia underwhelmed, never knowing what it had to truly offer them. Yet every so often, a tourist is wise enough to slip a coin into a small mechanical box on the side of the wall. As the payment falls into place, the tomb's vaulted ceiling is briefly illuminated. An expanse of bright stars fill an indigo sky orbiting around a central cross. The image of Jesus Christ as the shepherd lovingly caring for his flock is presented before all those lucky enough to see it. Almost as soon as the mosaic is revealed, however, the lights turn off, leaving those left in the mausoleum to rummage their pockets and purses for loose change. Another coin is more than worth it to witness such a wonder once more. While I was at school, I met a woman once uh, who said in regards to her prayer life, I don't talk, I just listen. 
And God doesn't talk, he just listens. And if you don't understand, I can't explain it to you. What she was talking about was prayer as communion. You see, as we conclude our 40-day study on prayer, I felt led to speak to you about prayer as a way to have communion with God. See, in such a fallen world, perhaps you find yourselves realizing that things don't always go as planned. Illness, treachery, sin, bad weather, and the likes. The reality is all too real sometimes that we have no control over the world around us. And I find it's often that attitude in those positions that bring us to our knees in prayer. God, I don't have control over this. God, I need help with that. God, I'm afraid of. Now, there's nothing wrong with supplication of your needs to God. That is a biblically affirmed use of prayer, and I'm not discouraging that discipline. I think the danger, however, comes when that is the only way we know how to pray to God. Let's put it this way. If you only ever spoke to your spouse in terms of what you needed from them, how healthy would your relationship with them be? Is that, of enough, is that enough of a foundation? Of course not. So why do we so often approach God this way then? I mean, imagine the moments of your day when you are wholly content. There's no stress, day off of work, your belly's full, you've used the bathroom, time for a nap. Everything's good. You never really feel like praying in those moments, do you? At least certainly not compared to the moments when things aren't going well. You see, if we understand prayer as just a tool to fulfill our needs, to satisfy our fear, it fosters a subtle tendency of consumer Christianity. This idea that God exists to give me what I need, but otherwise I have my life handled. I think that perhaps Christ shows us a better way to use prayer, ultimately more beneficial in the long run. And that's what brings us to this passage here in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. To set the stage, Jesus has begun his full-time ministry. He's acquired the disciples. He is going out and about preaching and teaching in villages, temples, mountaintops, proclaiming the name of the Lord. And he has just miraculously fed 5,000 men, in addition to women and children, with a meager five loaves of bread and two fish. So late in the day, everyone's just had a phenomenal dinner. And that's where this story begins, immediately after that miracle has completed. Let's begin reading at verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Let's pause here. I find Christ's actions here quite fascinating. I think we often glaze over some of his, his leadership abilities, his decisiveness in his ministry. 
And I think that's indicative of something larger at hand. And you'll see Matthew reiterate this, this sense of urgency that he has immediately executing his decision. He dismisses the disciples first saying, go on ahead and cross the sea. I will catch up. Does that not intrigue you? I mean, unless there's some small one-man boat nearby, I would have been confused. I'm certain the disciples were. Jesus, are you planning to swim across the sea at this hour? Yet even so, they obey Christ's instructions. They get into the boat, set off for the other side while he dismisses the crowds. And then what does he do? Does he catch up to them? No. He walks up the side of the mountain, finds a quiet place to himself, and begins to pray to his Father. Let's rewind. Christ has just performed perhaps the largest scale miracle in his ministry so far. The disciples have probably experienced some, some form of spiritual high. I mean, surely they know he was the Messiah, but now, but now. Who knows how many of those present that day chose to follow Jesus. And finally, at the end of a long and successful day of ministry with full stomachs and exhausted bodies, I'm sure they all just want to rest their head. But not for Christ, no. He decides to forego his sleep a little longer so that he can be with his Father. And this is not incongruent with the Christ we read throughout the entirety of the gospel narrative. Time after time after time, we see Christ stealing himself away for a time of prayer with his Father. In fact, in Luke's account, he says that Jesus would often withdraw to places of solitude to pray. And if we take a closer look at the prayer life of Christ, we see him place an emphasis on the relational aspect of prayer rather than the transactional. He never goes to his father out of need, out of fear. It's out of love. Anyone here a fan of jazz music? Yep, that's about right. You see, jazz has this uncanny ability to feel as if it's never going to end. You could have like a 15-minute jazz song with a trumpetist or a, or a saxophone player just making it up as he goes along. You have no idea where it's going. It's what makes jazz so vibrant and at the same time so exhausting. And the reason jazz is capable of making that type of music work is because of something called the pedal tone. See, the pedal tone is the bassist in the back of the corner, strumming, plucking the same note over and over again at the same rhythm, giving the music just enough foundation to thrive. From its constant and ever-present repetition, it gives freedom to all the other artists. Jesus prayed, made prayer his pedal tone. The communion he had with his heavenly father was the anchor of his soul. 
It sustained the weakness within his flesh. It conquered the fear in his heart. It powered his spirit. The relationship he had with his father was the foundation for the entirety of his ministry, even to the cross. That's why we get such a passionate scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's continue reading the passage. Verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pause here. The Roman world at the time had the night divided into four sections, four watches. The first watch began at 6 p.m. and went to 9. The next 9 to midnight, midnight to 3, and then 3 to 6. So the fourth watch of the night was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. This is indicative of two things. The first is that whatever storm the disciples were fighting on the sea must have been pretty challenging, considering at this time they were still battling the winds. And two, it meant that Jesus had been praying for a very, very long time, the entirety of the evening. And then we encounter a miracle. Christ calmly walking over a violent sea. One anchor, one constant amidst a world of chaos. And the disciples, they see this and they're filled with terror. How is the sea not conquering this ghostly silhouette? No living thing should be capable of this. But then the passage says this, immediately, there it is again. Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Does that sound familiar at all to you? The Greek translation for it is I is ego emi. You've heard it before. It's what God told Moses in the form of a burning bush. Ego emi, I am. Consider this scene for yourself. You're in this boat as far as the eye can see in any direction. It's only darkness, it's only chaos. High winds, violent waters at 4 a.m. in the morning. And in the midst of it all, Christ Jesus is standing on open water before you, stoic, calm, rooted, anchored in his Father. And he's calling out to the ones he loves, saying, do not be afraid, I am. In that moment, would your soul not have been calmed? Who among you would trade that moment in 
for a day of calm waters and clear skies. Let's finish the passage. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Amen. It's clear to me that Peter's soul was ever so briefly in the right place. Notice that the storm had yet to cease, but the reality of Christ, this anchor amidst the storm, saying, I am, do not be afraid. That was more than enough to send him over the side of his ship, running to the arms of his Savior. Though as he makes his way to Christ, his fear returns to him. The reality of his surroundings hits him once again. His gaze, which was fixed on Jesus for a brief moment, is diverted again to the reality of the storm. And that's when he begins to sink. Filled with dread, Peter calls out, Lord, save me. And we get this description again of Jesus immediately reaching out and saving him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Don't you know who I am? I just told you, I am. Where is your anchor, Peter? Remember. And how can this storm overcome you? Notice that Peter did not need saving until he took his focus off of Christ. When he was focused on Jesus, the danger around him, while still very present, while still very real, could not conquer him. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican friar in the Catholic Church and arguably one of the most intelligent men in all of Christian history. His crowning work was known as the Summa Theologica, or Summary of Theology. It was intended as a reference book for young theology students, encompassing every possible aspect you could think of. Just for sheer perspective, if you were capable of reading 250 words per minute, it would take you 62 hours to read. It's just short of one million words. See, Aquinas dedicated his life to the preparation of ministers, to good, solid theology. Writing was what he did best. But on December 6, 1273, all that changed for him. 
That morning, like any other, Thomas went to the chapel to pray by himself. And after leaving the chapel that morning, he never wrote another word. One of his brothers soon asked, Master, will you not return to your work? I can write no more, he replied. All that I have written seems like straw. He gave no further explanation, and no one dared to ask him more, and he spent the short remainder of his life in quiet communion with Jesus. Now, I don't know what happened in that chapel that morning. No one does. But perhaps he experienced Christ in a very real and tangible way that made him realize what was more important where his focus should be. What if we understood prayer as a communion with God rather than a supplication to him? What if we prayed not out of expectation or out of need, but rather out of longing? What if much like the pedal tone of a jazz composition, we could anchor our life to Christ through a relational prayer, making our prayer a way that we could be with Jesus instead of a way to satisfy our, our fear by what we could get from him? What if Christ became our end rather than a means to something else? You see, the intimacy that Christ seeks to have with his Father throughout the entirety of the gospel story is the same intimacy we should seek to have with Christ every day. And he's standing firm in the chaos of your own life, saying, do not be afraid. I am. What more could you need? Let's pray. Almighty God, teach us to pray as you. Teach us to know you, to long for you. Teach us to relinquish our fear in the security of your foundation, Lord. 